you know, life is not going to come to a standstill if I don't agree with you. Or, like real you know, love. Like, look, I got to know the person. <laughs> gay marriage, gay rights, homosexuality. My opinion is, um, like, empathy. I guess I have an opinion. Empathy. They don't call you fickles. Someone anymore. asked, what, what is it like to lose your dad? Someone who's younger than me still have their parents. I said, well, it's kind of like the railing on There's the There's good knockouts. I never good Getting to know somebody, thinking the thoughts of the other might yes. be a hugely healing thing and might be exactly I got what we need I got universal health care, taxes, right Confederate monuments, oh, oh my God. <laughs> political correctness, Obama. Just really appreciate Obama it, and, and uh, it's really fun for me. And um, I feel really, really lucky Same here. to have this time. Same here, John. I, I've, I've enjoyed it uh, greatly. Thank you. Welcome to Like You, where I talk to real people about their lives, what they believe, and why they believe it. My name is John Zelson. Subscribe on any podcast service or listen from the website at likeyoupodcast.org. These conversations are not about agreeing or convincing. It's about trying to understand another person. This is episode three, the second and last part of the interview with Wes. If you haven't already, please do listen to episode two, the first part of the interview. This podcast, this experiment in understanding each other, is designed so that you first just get to meet someone. When you spend time with someone, getting to know them, it changes how you hear them. This interview was conducted in late November 2017. Please remember that the Wes you are hearing does not have the benefit of knowing what you know now. Did you vote for Donald Trump? I did. What made him the right choice for you? The right choice. Uh, of the two evils I had, he seemed like the most interesting evil. <laughs> the most interesting evil. Why was Hillary a less interesting evil? She was the, the normal evil, okay, in that uh, she had done all the right things her entire life, cultivated all the right relationships, uh, danced on both sides of the law to the right degree of artistry to avoid being indicted or uh, incarcerated uh, for her entire life, uh, suffered the normal uh, political indignities of a husband who cheated on her regularly and defaced the office of the White House. Uh, I was able to look beyond all that. You know, she basically was able to do all the things that a successful politician should do in order to reach the highest ranks of the American polity. And that just struck me as annoyingly average. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't think she is worse than the average politician. Is that true? No, no, no. <laughs> No, I, th I think she suffered more than the average politician because so much of the indignities and corruptions, if I can use the term broadly here, mm -hmm. that uh, follow all politicians were hers publicly to address and, and fight her way through. And, and to that extent, she did an admirable job. Mm -hmm. During the primaries, they would chant, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you have a reaction to that? Oh, that was stupid. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter had nothing to do with uh, what was uh, a relevant issue. Um, it was uh, opportunistic, okay, but not relevant to her success in, in the office, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all, all that they were going off of with lock her up, lock her up, and the whole tapes thing and the, the servers was um, uh, a lever that they could find a chink in the arm and they wanted to uh, use it, right. not because it was uh, relevant to success in office, but because it was effective. That's what politics is all about, right? Is doing those things that are effective, okay, regardless of whether they're relevant. Mm-hmm. The one problem I had when I was listening to that is I felt that it was a fundamental violation of the like a the democ a democratic institution, like a tradition of our government where we don't lock up our political appoint political opponents. Like that very notion was um uh how can I say it? it was on one hand it was a joke I would make all these jokes I would always tell my friends I were going to lock them up when I became president but <laughs> it was so it was funny but it was also kind of scary like here's someone running for president who's talking about locking up someone without due process or or seeming to not include due process in what they say it, it was weird it seemed un-American to me can you speak to that yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, when you think about due process, that's used in the office of uh, a government in order to uh, uh, bypass the procedural protections that are afforded under the Constitution or state and federal law. Okay, and you know, when they're having those chants in the stands, uh, Trump's not representing anyone but himself. Okay, he's not an elected official, so he can say whatever he wants. Okay. Uh, now, when he's in office, okay, one of the things that was interesting is that he backed away almost immediately from uh, the investigations into the Hillary situation with the servers and whatever's going on with, um, I heard that one, uh, <laughs> with the Clinton Foundation. So it, it, that actually corresponded to my way of viewing Trump is that, you know, Trump is the consummate say what's convenient or pops into my head at the moment, okay? And sometimes he may act on those. More often than not, nah, once he gets his way, he's done. You know, he, he lets it go. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's pretty simple in that regard. Uh, with George, George Bush, the elder, I guess it was Herbert Walker, you know, he was known for being vindictive. That if you crossed him, you know, 20 years later, he tried to find a way to get back at you. Okay, where Trump, you know, he's a bullhard. Okay, he'll say damn near anything, and, and, and the horrific things. Okay, lock her up, whatever. Um, but when the time comes to actually do something, about ninety percent is going to fall away. Now, a much more serious issue is whether something happens with North Korea or not, because that kind of blowhardism leads to unintended consequences that can spiral out of control. But I never really seriously worried about him uh, uh, suborning the use of the Justice Department to. Uh, incarcerate Hillary Clinton without due process. I I really couldn't see that happening. It wasn't. But it wasn't it bother me. Right. It wasn't that I was worried about him actually doing it in a way. Although I did see, it did seem like he was getting people to chant something that was a blatant violation of a an underpinning of our approach toward govern governing. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that matters. Right. You okay. Free. So what? I mean, if you had the white supremacists out there saying, you know, let's, let's kill the blacks. Well, that's kind of a violation of an underpinning of American society, too. Okay. But, but I don't not, want to stop them from saying it. You know? Well, I mean, but this, I, rude. 
Right, it's it's Rube, but it's running for it's running for president. He's running for president. Like that's different. You know, someone can chant something on the street, and I evaluate that differently. But the 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 fact of the matter is, you heard that you understand it for what it is, and from your perspective, it's just him saying something to whip up the crowds. Because yep, that's, yeah. yep. There's, there's no force behind it. There's no force. What is it? Orwell used to say, "Politics is." Um, I can't remember how you put it, but it's, it's, it's vacuousness. It's, it's sound and fury signifying <laughs> nothing. Right, right, Shakespeare. Right. He, Orwell had a great comment on this. You know, it's, I'm sure it's he the did. The <laughs> of pure wind, I think you said. And that's, that's Trump. Right. That's uh, here, Trump. Here's another one that really bugged me. And as a former military person, I was curious about your reaction. When McCain, who I don't know anyone who doesn't think of him as a war hero, regardless of your politics, um, said that it was the losers who got caught. And so McCain was a loser for getting caught. Like the reason he was in a Vietnamese prison yeah, camp. That was just stupid. Yeah. yeah, that was blatant stupidity on Trump's part. You know, now as a, you know McCain's merits as a political candidate and the career path he chose once he got out of the service. Okay, I think that's open to uh, scrutiny. But uh, you know, losers don't he don't fly into Sam's okay to get knocked out of the air and spend six <laughs> right. years in Hanoi Hilton. Okay, it doesn't work. And if Trump would spend you know a week at the Survival Escape Resistance and Evasion Course in uh, the woods of North Carolina, he'd feel very differently too. Even though he would never actually be in any danger, but his attitudes would change dramatically. Um, uh, so no, all that crap went up there, McCain about you know being losers and, and it's bad that he was a prisoner of war. Okay. Um, uh, is um, uh, thoughtlessness, which, you know, I, I give that to 30% of the things that Trump has to say, at least. You tolerate these, some of these things. Uh, oh, you, you've got to tolerate the things your elected officials do, otherwise you'll be constantly pissed off. I mean, like with Barack Obama, okay, here's a guy who you know, is very glib, very articulate, they compose, okay, but he humiliated the United States by allowing uh, our reputation with red lines and, you know, that we would not allow to get crossed to be mocked by the rest of the world. And, and that's one of the things that Trump is going to turn around. You know, Barack was the, the penultimate predictable political decision maker, uh, which has led to us being you know, undermined globally. So I don't think that succeeded. So you got to be willing to tolerate that. Now, Trump is kind of the... Uh, the inverse of that, and that he is so unpredictable that he has got the rest of the world worrying about things that they don't know or understand because he's so unpredictable, okay? We'll see how that works. And I'm sure that's very painful for a lot of folks uh, on the left when they, they look at how Trump behaves because he's scaring them. Well, that's precisely the idea because when you deal with guys like in Iran or in North Korea, and there are really bad people out there, if you don't scare them one way or the other, then they're going to take advantage of you. If you're predictable, you're in trouble. So, you know, there's different strokes for different folks and what they're looking for in elected officials. And, uh, regardless, you're not going to be happy with some of the things they do. And if you're not tolerant of that to some extent, okay, or don't, you know, have broad, broad red lines in your personal life, you're going to find yourself pissed off every day at almost anything they do. When you were saying that you think that um, Obama um, uh, kind of lowered our stature in the world, or, oh yeah, or allowed yeah. us to what, what made us very popular with a bunch of people that you know we shouldn't be popular with. Yeah, can you? Um, I'm curious uh, if you can to drill into that a little bit, uh, as specific as you can. What are the kinds of things you think Obama Obama policies lowered our statue or made us more um, 
Well, I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Uh, we talk about lower order statue. If there's any other kind of negative consequences of his, well, like the whole involvement with Syria. Okay, uh, you know he said the right things. You know he provided a measured gradation of uh, lines that the Syrian government should not cross. Okay, in the prosecution of their civil war. Okay, now whether he should have gotten involved in that is a whole other kettle of fish, but you know, he did. Okay. Um, and then once those lines were crossed, there was no repercussion. Okay. So therefore, what he signaled to the rest of the world is, we'll say things, but just like Trump, they don't mean anything. They'll sound more credible. They won't sound harebrained. Okay. They won't be said rationally and uh, uh, <laughs> almost maniacally. They'll be very calm and deliberate and provided through proper channels at the right levels and reinforced on the Sunday morning talk shows all appropriately. But they mean nothing more. Okay. So uh, you can count on us to say things that we will not stand by, uh, and you need to watch what we really do relative to uh, national policy and not what we say, okay? And that allowed you know, negative folks, okay, the Syrians, Iranians, the North Koreans, to see that, my God, they're not going to do anything. You know, about They're not going to do anything. So if I build out my nuclear capabilities in North Korea based on what I saw in Syria, the Obama administration won't do anything about it. And guess what? They were right. And now we face this potential cataclysm in North Korea or having to live with the threat of a, a lunatic, and I don't mean Trump here, I mean uh, Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. uh, with his hand upon nuclear ICBMs. Um, about Syria, here's the, what I thought happened, right? And I can't quote you all my sources. Right? But here's what okay. I thought. Um, Obama did say, if you use chemical weapons, something's going to happen. They use chemical weapons, but what he all, then what he said is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go in to this crazy civil war, this madness, without having Congress um, by my side. Sorry about that. So, um, so he asked Congress to give him the authority to go in, and Congress could not get a vote to give him the authority. And that the some people might accuse Obama of like pushing off responsibility, but but that he'd said that for armed conflict, the president shouldn't be just ordering our men into battle. That we need to be more unified. Did, do you know that part of the story? Is that um... yeah? That that's his rationalization. But none of that is new. Okay, so if that is the case, that you don't want to take military action with the support of Congress, good, then don't make policy decisions that are bound by the decisions of others. So if you're going to take America's position and declare it to the world, a very exciting thing to do. And then later on, when it's inconvenient, state that, well, I was really speaking out of turn because although it sounded really good in the soundbite, I can't act on the things I said I was going to do without the approval of mommy and daddy. Okay, well, then you're not really the leader of the free world, because you could act on those pronouncements you made without Congress's uh, blessing, okay? But you're unwilling to do that for whatever principled reason you happen to dream up today, okay? Well, then don't say it in the first place. Be clear that sub what you want to do is say this, subject to the approval of more responsible authority under our <laughs> Constitution, the Congress, I'll do all these brave things. But, of course, then you signal to the world that, 
you won't do them unless you get that approval. And then what's the probability of Congress ever being able to do something? Slim to none. So therefore, we should look at this bold pronouncement with the, the scant eye it deserves. You're never going to do anything. But that's why he didn't say it that way. He said he drew his lines before he said, I got this problem with having someone else approve my decisions um, because he wanted to sound like a leader. Okay, he wanted to be bold and assertive, and that's all good stuff. The problem is, is that it was all a sham. Okay, if you felt that way about having congressional oversight, you knew that before you opened your mouth, just like Trump knows things before he opens his mouth, but he still opens his mouth. Okay, and both of them, you know, say things that uh, they apparently uh, won't act on. Do you think it is not consistent with how presidents? manage these scenarios where they say I'm going to go pursue a treaty or that we're going to, the United States is going to take action um, if something happens, whatever. And then they do have to go through uh, Congress to approve uh, treaties and um, arms. Like, it seems, in a way, it seems like you're taking issue with the order that things happen. Uh, now, is that uh, well? The order and the thinking behind it, like yeah, for yeah. example, you know, in comparing you know, treaties to uh, pronouncements of the use of military force or going to war. Okay, um, a, a president can sign a treaty, and it has no force until it's ratified by Congress. So, therefore, the the engines of the government aren't going to be able to do anything. Companies will not be able to benefit from it, and. Um, uh, there's there's a defined process for doing that, and there's no the extent to which you can do anything unilaterally is very limited. Okay, um, but when it comes to the use of military power, the president has great discretion to do so. Now he can't declare war, but the fact of the matter is he can pick a fight and get us into a fight in ten minutes. Definitely. Okay. And there's no one who's going to be able to stop him unless there's a coup, okay? So he has great – and people recognize this. It's, it's real politics. He can launch the bombers. He can launch the cruise missiles. He can send the 82nd Airborne. He can do these things, and people find out about it when, you know, they get texted or they hear about it on CNN, okay? So, therefore, what you say, you have the ability to act unilaterally as a president, and therefore it matters, Okay. So the, the saying and the doing can be closely tied, okay? There, there's real import, okay? Unless, of course, okay, you have a policy position that you don't want to uh, grant yourself that discretion. So if Barack Obama did not want to grant himself that discretion, wanted to have congressional oversight, he should, should have factored that into his pronouncements about Syria. I mean, as opposed to saying, if you do this, yeah. I'm going to do this. He should have said, if you do this, I'm going to go to Congress and see if they, we should do anything about it. And if they say yes, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that would have been a much more accurate way of depicting what was really going on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't do that. And he didn't do that for a reason. He didn't do that because oh, it just occurred to me after I'd opened my mouth that I really should go to Congress on this because I'm unaware of the fact that I really want Congress to sanction these things. He did that because politically it sounded better at the time. 
mm-hmm. okay? And you could sound like a leader that would impose his will or fight evil on the world front, okay, at that time. And then later on, you know, looking at options, there's a 50-50 chance that Syrians may think I'm, I'm not kidding, okay? And they may not cross those red lines, and no one will call my bluff. But the Syrians called his bluff. Okay, and so now he's got to bring out that other part of his thinking, which is, oh, fine, they call me both. I'm going to go to Congress, and I'm going to, you know, see what they have to say. So he has separated in time the issue of establishing a position and then exercising the authority to support that position. He could have done that all in advance, but either he is naive, okay, or he's calculating, and it just turned out that the dice or the cards didn't break the way he was hoping. Let me um, – I want to focus on the Congress. Do you, do you find any fault in the Congress not being able to approve of um, any action against Syria? Uh, no, no, uh, uh, because the, the issue of acting on the world stage I, I see as the president's responsibility, okay, uh, not the Congress. They fund these things, but they don't determine policy, and they don't execute policy. They, they fund it, okay. So I think Congress is bad from a – uh, a moral standpoint, they couldn't come to grips with the issue and be, have a unified voice. But I never expect Congress to do that anyways, unless they're being herded like sheep because someone else has established a position that has polarized the discussion so much that they have strong support for it, like the first Iraq war, even though there were a lot of people after the fact, oh, that's a bad vote, and I made a mistake, whatever. Um, or um, they're polarized to the point that they're going to they're gonna fight about it. Okay, so it's like... I didn't expect them to be able to be decisive on this matter, so why would I be disappointed? Well, you're saying, right, that chemical weapons were used against men, women, and children in Syria, and the Congress couldn't vote for us to do anything about it. And you don't fault the Congress for that. It's the president's job to send our troops into harm's way. Yeah, it's his job to lead, not Congress's on that. Because Congress is, Congress is going to be chaotic. It's like, um, you know, my kids are playing out in the yard and they're playing baseball. You know, I should go tell them, okay, because they're kids, to get away from the house because they're going to knock a ball through the window. <laughs> but if I don't, I'm, I'm running the risk that this is, they're going to knock a ball through the window, okay? In fact, the matter is, if I really don't like that window because my, my wife put stained glass in it, <laughs> let those kids play ball up against the okay. house and beg forgive. Oh, honey, I just didn't see the danger when they put that baseball right through your favorite window. Okay? You would and never that's what out here. You would never do such a dastardly manipulative manipulative play. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> I wouldn't, but Barack words. Obama would. So, <laughs> and, and that's how I look at this: is that by expecting Congress to ratify his actions, he knew they wouldn't. Okay, it's unlikely that they would. Do. And if he did, if if they did ratify his position, okay, then he had air cover. That's not leadership. That's administration. You know, I don't look to the president to be a great administrator. Okay, I look at him to be the commander and the chief. Okay, where he sets the policy and then executes it, and the rest of us have to decide. Well, we don't like that. Okay, we're going to fight against it, or we're going to get in line and we're going to support him. Okay, um, not to be a great administrator. Okay, helpful but not necessary. Okay, I look at him to be a leader, and he didn't lead. He didn't lead. So, not that um, Trump's doing any better, understand? But when you assemble your worldview, that that, that is that. Uh, Obama didn't um, didn't act on that those red lines. Uh, 
can you think of information sources that you're using that are helping you uh, like structure that? Sure, uh, all through the internet, but foreign policy, um, a magazine, Washington Post, New York Times, um, editorials that are pulled from dozens of different art, uh, mag newspapers or magazines that are shown in real clear politics. Uh, everything from Mother Jones to the L.A. Times to the Boston Herald. Again. Those are all central um, or, or some would even say left of center, but you're right of center. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, yeah, actually, the, the things like the week, okay, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, I'm not, an American spectator, I think it's another one. Yeah. There's, there's, um, they're like Sean Hannity. You know, and Sean Hannity's a nice guy, and all. he certainly believes in his position. But there's a stridentness that, you know, makes me think he's protesting too much, and it makes it, you know, uh, difficult to tolerate in large doses. It's like Rachel Maddow on the left. It's difficult to tolerate in large doses. Uh -huh. So I'd prefer to hear what uh, the guys who have a different opinion of things from a, from a um, – starting point perspective, okay, how they look at their worldview, I guess it would be the term you use, um, and hear what they have to say, okay, and then sift from, you know, that perspective, what's fact, what's impression, what's, you know, wishful thinking, as opposed to hearing from folks who may be more closely oriented to me and, and uh, trying to uh, sift the same thing from what they're having to say, because you, you may have a blind spot, mm. right? Let's talk about Universal health care. Okay. So that's Affordable Care Act. They call it Obamacare. What's your, what's your take on that? Do you have a strong feeling? Um, I, I think the argument around Obamacare is a lot like the argument around immigration, whether they should build a wall. Mm -hmm. I think we're fighting uh, last decade's battle. Okay. Um, for instance, you know, uh, while philosophically uh, I might be opposed to the handout that Obamacare represents, okay, but there are other people who say, well, a handout, that, that's charitable, okay, so it's not really a handout, it's a hand up, and it's, their lives are precious snowflakes and blah, 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 whatever. And, that, and philosophically, I, I, I can understand how we could agree or disagree on that, okay. But the simple fact is that the math makes it all irrelevant, okay, in that when you look at the growth of um, – GDP and population. GDP is a, has a higher growth rate than population. Okay, the fact of the matter is we're becoming more richer as a society. Okay, we couldn't be talking about universal health care in 1880. It would have been nuts. Okay, not only do we lack the infrastructure for it, we lack the wealth to be able to support it. Okay, today the issue's in doubt. Well, you know, if we expand Medicaid and make Medicaid for all, which is, would be broader than the ambitions of Obamacare, uh, it would bankrupt the country. Yeah, today it would. But if we continue on the trajectory of replacing labor with capital, okay, and have self-driving cars and flying cars and uh, robots and AI and things of that nature, what about in 10 years or 20 years? Will it be the case that we're so rich that fundamentally not only can we afford universal health care for all, so why would we deny it because it's marginally de minimis, you know, maybe we provide a universal basic income as well. And although, you know, philosophically, I, I don't like that because it doesn't appeal to the right interest. It allows the freeloader problem to go rampant, okay? Mm -hmm. 
the numbers say that, you know, guess what? You may just have to get used to the free, uh, free load, a free rider problem. You may have to get used to there's going to be a certain segment of the population, whether it's 20 or 47% or whatever the number is, okay, that are going to get a free ride on the creative talent or the financial machinations of the top 1%. And that may just be what the numbers require as we become a richer and richer society here in America and then more globally. So I, I really, I, I, I really, know. I really appreciate talking to you because you're assembling this information so different from how I hear it from other folks. So I got, I have, I got so many questions. For starters, let's ignore the moral aspect of universal healthcare, right? Let's just talk about money. You're saying that when we're as we get richer, we might be able to afford universal healthcare. Yeah. But the the argument I've heard is that it's actually a lot cheaper. If you look at like most of the Western developed countries, they're, health, they're paying a lot less of their GDP. So they're getting a lot cheaper health care, and they have universal health care. We're paying more for our health care to get less. So I don't understand the financial argument. We're paying like you know 15 to 20% admin costs because we've got to pay to administer the insurance companies and all the other, the layer after layer after layer with perverse incentives of what costs really are because of how the free market thing has kind of unfolded around healthcare. So can you can you speak to this notion that I actually think we'd save money by you doing universal healthcare? What do you well, think the that? okay, I, I'm familiar with the argument, but we're, at some point we get a level of understanding of the issues which exceeds my, my current grasp, but I, I would offer this. Um, anytime you can purchase something in scale, you would expect marginal costs to go down, okay, which would mean um, that aggregate costs for everyone go down as you uh, uh, concatenate all the purchasing. I mean, how did Walmart become so uh, big? Because right. they bought huge volumes at discount prices, which allowed them to sell at low prices and cut the competition, and they provided, what is that slogan I have, uh, uh, better life for less or something like that. Okay, so the same thing should apply in uh, healthcare, right? If we can... Uh, uh, Cloud the insurance companies into a single universal insurer, okay, we should expect uh, administrative cost efficiencies of some sort to go down, okay, and you should also expect better reporting, okay, which would allow you, if you're willing, to uh, look at who are good providers, who are bad providers, and to charge differential pricing, which would lower aggregate costs and also provide a better uh, price-to-value um, linkage as opposed to paying the same rate everywhere and getting, you know, uneven performance, okay? Uh, so that's all theoretically true, okay? There's only one problem, okay, from my vantage point. Mm -hmm. There are people involved, okay? And the problem with people is they, they are all in favor of a merit-based system as long as it applies to others, okay? Um, you know, I work in the healthcare field now in a way of manner of speaking, okay? And I look at the, the talent around us in the company, and uh, there are people who, you know, lack the credentials, lack the experience, lack the maturity, lack the ability, lack the work ethic, lack the energy, lack the insight, whatever. They lack all these things, okay, that you would think would be great, um, clinical service and better outcomes for patients, okay? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they want to accept the fact that they're not going to get a promotion. They still want a promotion. They still want as much money as the next guy over. They want to make more money. They want to be in charge. They still have ambitions, mm 
okay? It almost reminds me of the movie Gladiator where uh, the guy named Commodus is taking over after Marcus Aurelius, and he's saying, you know, my father doesn't love me because I don't have honor and integrity and courage and all that, but I have ambition, and I have vengeance, and I have virility, okay? I've got my own talents, okay? I want this, okay? Um, but unfortunately, other people don't want to pay for that, but that these people are involved, Okay, so they have all these other talents other than the ones that are relevant to good clinical outcomes and lowering costs, and they're in the system too. And these people are a real problem. They are a real problem, and they're everywhere, just like all the good people are everywhere, okay? And they will take whatever perspective you have that economies of scale is job one, so have universal health care, or have a competitive marketplace and let the marketplace fight out amongst the different competitors that will be penalized or rewarded by the, the mixture of uh, talents that they have in their companies. Whichever one you have, these people have the ability to you know, twist the system, Okay, and unfortunately, that's why the market performance are in favor of the market. The larger system you have, the more likely you're going to have creatures of that system by business prominence, not based upon merit, not based upon what provides greater value, lower cost, whatever, but based upon a, a other abilities, political so, astuteness, stuff like that. Yeah, and that's you know, I you know, I, I can I can see the problems you're discussing, in, especially in the abstract, and. Uh, I've always, um, you know, agreed with when people are are skeptical of government, right? We had, we have politic, we have free market, let's say, in uh, in healthcare, and there was, you know, four plus million people uninsured. Um, if you had a pre-existing condition, it was, you know, it was unaffordable, um, it, and we were still paying for it because we don't turn people away at emergency rooms. And so if something terrible happened to someone, it would, we would just give them the most expensive care. Like, I, I'm trying to balance some principles, right? This is some abstract principles with the reality that um, it seems like we're choosing the most expensive, most painful way of delivering health care. And we're thinking we're going to get a lot of money. Like, the free market, it works because someone is paying money. Like, I'm trying to just balance the what seems to me the financial... Yeah, let me know when you figure that out because I mean that's one of the <laughs> fundamental issues here is that uh, you've got competing principles. Okay, for example, um, the, the the convention where hospitals cannot turn away emergency patients. Well, that kind of uh, undermines um, the ability to regulate uh, pricing. Okay, based upon uh, uh, ability to pay. Okay, you're 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 forcing someone to absorb a cost when they can't pay, okay? Do you think that we should not have that rule? You know, see, I don't know, because to me, that rule should be subordinate to the ability to pay, because what I do know is this, is that we can't allow people who can't pay their bills to bankrupt the system so that no one has the ability to get care, right? So the question comes down to how much discretionary income do we have that we can allocate to medical care that would provide what level of care to people who can't pay? Okay, because and that's just one aspect. Because the second aspect gets into how much behavior plays a role in this. Okay, for example, someone who smokes entire life and they can't pay their medical bills, should they have the right to cutting edge uh, lung cancer treatments that cost hundreds of thousands, given their behavior, or should the state be able to say, look, no smoking at all? We restrict your rights to smoke because we've determined that it, you know, is the leading driver of 
cancer that is extremely um, uh, expensive to treat, okay? Mm -hmm. So we're going to restrict your rights going forward. These issues have not been thought through. It goes back to our earlier conversation that, you know, we have this, these shouting matches at each other about whether it's uh, Obamacare is better than the free market and whatever, without getting into the fundamental issues of, well, hold on, what right does the state have to regulate human behavior in order to mitigate costs of that behavior to society? Okay, and if the state does not have unlimited rights, okay, but there's restrictions, no, we will not stop people from smoking, good, then what does that mean for the individual, we decide that good from the standpoint, we at least decided one freaking thing, okay, but now for the individual <laughs> who smokes, okay, what does that mean to them? Does that mean that um, if they in take this risk knowingly, okay, does that mean we have the right to deny them care when they get sick mm -hmm. and just say, sorry, buddy? Time for big boys, okay? You, you knew what the risks were. You did it anyways, and now you're going to die a pretty horrible death. Here's some uh, right, easier passing. Right, what are we th gonna... Those things are not being addressed. We, we sidestep that stuff. Aren't a lot of decisions we're making as a politically or as a, as a, in a society, the laws we make, aren't we always balancing the tug and pull between individual freedom and the impact to others? You know, like that's the I art. would agree. I would agree, yep. yep. And we think about that with guns, like, it's it's the practical balance of um, life, modern life, and how we balance individual liberties. And that's what I was trying to ask about. Um, if, let's say, uh, of the people, they're getting slammed with unaffordable costs through health care, right? Let's say 60% of those are people where you can't really take issue, any sensible issue with the way they're living. They just got unlucky, right? And once you walk into a hospital, right, you are thousands and thousands of dollars it's going to cost. If you're not covered, if you're working a quote-unquote middle-class job, you wouldn't be able to pay that off for many, for years and years and years. Yep. First of all, do you, do you accept that scenario? For a middle-class person, if they're going to the hospital for anything serious at all, they're going to be there, get operated, be there for a while, they could be, they could be tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Oh, oh easily, easily. I, I would agree with the the scenario modeling. Yep. All right, right. And let's say let's just say the majority, you know, of those people are normal people who haven't taken any bizarre risks that you're not going to take issue with their lifestyle. So, from a broad kind of public health um, perspective, making a system that is going to make sure that those people don't end up on the street in debt or in debt, you know bankrupt or something, would that be a compelling reason for you to, to look at universal health care options? No. I see that you're painting a sympathetic picture, okay, but I want to ask the question, okay, so of uh, the health system that we have, what is our expectation of it? Do we have a number in mind and what we're expecting the outcomes to look like? St. Jude is great about that. They were just calling earlier, right? They can show you numbers about where they started off 50 years ago in terms of successful cancer treatments and where they are today, okay? I don't know if they have a goal in mind other than the abstract one of curing all childhood cancers. not a bad goal, but I'd like to have that debate. Well, how many cancers are childhood cancers? 10, 100, a million? What is that? Uh, but I'd want to know what is the, the objective we have, okay? And then assess how are we doing against that, okay? Because that, all that has to be dollar denominated. But what that all means, though, is that there's going to be some people who loot, okay? So if you fall in that 10%, even though the 90% looks great, if you're part of that 10%, okay, the system doesn't work for you. 
it's a tragedy. It's a catastrophe. We got to fix this because it doesn't work for me. Okay, but for as a society, what are we building our our medical system or any system to do to protect everyone, to insulate everyone from the you know the risks of life? Okay, or what? And we have to assess this up at that level. Otherwise, every single you know, tragic scenario or individual case that comes up will be an indictment of the system exists no matter how good that system from an objective standpoint is performing. And that's what we got to be careful of, okay? Because we always want to be goaded to do better. But we don't want to say that our system is broken, okay? Merely as a pejorative because it's not working for me. Okay, that's where you start twisting the language of, you know, what is fair and what is equitable and what is just or good, and they become punchlines to achieve what I want. Okay, that's an objective. You know, I think we would all agree on that. In fact, that's what I was trying to do when I take a step back and I say, like, what are the percentages and what, what like, not worrying about some people who are abusing the system who I think will always, always be the case. And I always think there will be rich people and there will be poor people. There will always be rich people that are gonna, that that are gonna, their needs are met. They're gonna, they're gonna have health care. Even if you have universal health care, they'll have better health care. That's all for me. That's all like assumed. And I'm trying to get from you, if if you believe that there's some majority of people that you're not taking issue with their lifestyle, that are getting bankrupt by health care cost. Um, Could I ever see a that system is, that protected them too? The answer is yes. Once we've done the financial analysis to show that we had the disposable discretionary income and we had chosen that health care was, you know, fundable without putting national defense at risk or other key priorities, but we have the discretionary income, excess money, okay, where we can provide for 100% of the people. And therefore, regardless of whether they're a sympathetic character or not, suppose they're, you know, drug addicts and smokers and child molesters and any, any other type of comfortable behavior, you know, should we provide them medical care? Like Charlie Manson, he had great medical care when he was in California. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can I see providing that to them? Absolutely, if the money's there to do it. Are we there today? Probably you know, not. But I can see when I was looking at the financial aspects, I keep thinking that we're actually wasting money. Right, right now we're wasting money. Undoubtedly, that it could it could be that there's a bunch of aspects of the Affordable Care Act too, and I'm no expert at it. But you you mentioned when you're you were listing all the benefits of a more centralized system, and they can look at outcomes better. They're trying to re rejigger the incentives because there's you know the more medical procedures happen, the more the insurance company gets right. So there's uh, there can be an incentive to just Give everyone as much as possible because you get paid more. Absolutely, my wife is a victim of that. Yep. Oh goodness. Yep. Um, so, so one of the aspects of affordable care was to look at purely from the outcome perspective, and then they did some studies that were showing like sometimes a doctor's diagnosis is built from their experience, but they couldn't, they didn't have a broader base of data to say like in in this situation, what what treatments happen and what are the outcomes. Doctors surprisingly didn't have a, as good of a, um, a data view of those decisions. And part of the Affordable Care Act was to look at all that stuff, to not, to not look like, oh, if you get an operation, you get paid. But um, One thing I want to mention, one of the yeah. great things I, I like about the Affordable Care Act is its requirement to automate um, hospitals, uh, clinics, 
and even individual doctor practices. Now, they whine about that. I've talked to my, my own uh, primary care physician yeah. about how upset he is, how much he has to pay for the software that requires him to report in order to get paid. But the fact of the matter is, is that by creating that infrastructure, they can now gather the data, albeit in a, you know, a, a somewhat difficult manner. But at least they can get the data and they can do reporting that will allow them to report on efficacy outcomes and things of the nature, as opposed to just right. procedures and whether you, whether you got paid or not for that procedure. Okay. Now, whether we have the will to do that or not, for example, you don't see hospitals reporting their uh, mortality, five-year survival rates for stroke and, and heart disease. They say, we're number one. Number one? What does that mean? Well, we talked to a person on the street, and they said, we think you're number one. And they put that <laughs> in a cartoon and call it an advertisement, okay? But, so there's no, there's no relevance for it, but that's the world we live in now. But the, the foundation has been laid by Obamacare to actually take that data and say, hey, look, no, 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 Krauss kills about 70% <laughs> of the people who go there for heart attack treatment within two months. Arr, okay. Um, How does that compare to Upstate? How does that compare right. to... St. Joseph's, well, we are now laying the foundation where we can start getting at that data. Whether they want to provide it or not is another issue, okay? There's a, uh, but we have the foundation. Private industry has an incentive to not do, do stuff. For example, there was an initiative. And this so is the government. You know, these are people's jobs. You know, the government is, is not concerned about their, their, the people looking at what they do. Ask Lois Lerner about that. She's trying to have all the records sealed of all of her testimony, okay, <laughs> because she's worried about people being angry with her. People in any capacity, whether it's the government, private sector, are people. They right. have their own interests they want to protect, okay? Totally. And very few people have lily white hands, and if they did something that someone might not like, okay, their instinct is to hide it. Right. I was just going to say, the, um, the I, I, I was listening to a podcast, called, a relatively new one, called The Impact, and they were looking at the fax machine. Basically, the fax machine is used like crazy, so says this story. Um, and the reason is, even though... There was money. Um, um, I forget if the, the relationship to Obamacare, but there was money to digitize uh, um, uh, health records and put them in a standard format, and so they could be shared. Like when you switch doctors, like all your data would just seamlessly go over. And then to do some of this data collection, one of the things that happened is different companies made different programs to to look at this data, and it still use a fax machine because companies actually are resistant to having their data go to another company. Yep, right? yep. Um, it, healthcare does seem like a different, um, a different kind of challenge where if it was purely up to the private sector, it seems like, and it, as it has been at different parts of our history, it doesn't seem like it's efficient or gives you the best health outcomes. And that, so as a society where you're trying to find practical solutions to problems, it seems like, You'd say, "Whoa! If I just leave this up to private sector, it's not going. It, it isn't going to be satisfactory." Let, let me. Wh- how did you have a reaction to that assertion? Um, you know, I think the question is is time, okay, and iterations to get to mm-hmm. what you call satisfactory. Okay, <laughs> so if we have if we have a definition of what is satisfactory, okay. Um, and we think about, okay, the private sector, she matter of fact, the healthcare outcomes, over what timeline, okay, and then how many, you know, upheavals do we have to have, okay? For example, you can have satisfactory healthcare in Venezuela, right, depending on how you define satisfactory, but I don't think people here would like that term, okay? Um, so you got to be careful about what you define as satisfactory. And then what, what is the timeline for getting there? And based upon um, 
the the earlier part of our discussion, we talked about how you know humans are involved within the government, the private sector. Okay, um, I think that the real driver will be not whether one structure or the other uh, drives it, but whether there's transparency into performance. Mm. Okay. Uh, you get that transparency in the performance and price relative to that transparency, that uh, will shorten the curve, okay? But until you're willing to you know, live with the unintended consequences of that transparency, which means you may get fired, you may go to jail, whatever, um, we're intending that when we created these reporting programs, um, until you're willing to you know, suffer that, okay, or, or risk that, um, both models will have their own arcs over roughly, I, I can't even make that sound, over long periods of time, whether they're roughly equivalent or not is another issue, and they'll each have episodic um, um, phases that they'll go through as they get to a satisfactory solution. Right. I think both in time would get there, okay, um, but uh, uh, the raises one question. A government solution may never get there because the incentive to hide okay, is so great and the power to control the release of information is so great because you don't have a market that you can be compared against uh, where the private sector never never has that ultimate hiding place. So uh, while I think they both would eventually get to a satisfactory solution, there's, a, there's a, a side risk with the government solution that they may never get there. They may get stuck at level two or something like that just because um, there, there's just so much control over um, – uh, the marketplace that they, they may not have sufficient incentive to the people inside the structure to change, but that's speculation. Do you think that improving healthcare, and I know that's, I'm going to leave it wide open like that. Do you think there's a government role to play in building those iterations? Oh boy. Um, I'd say yes. I said there's a role, okay. Whether it's you know a light touch on the steering wheel or a firm grip on it, um, mm -hmm. or controlling the brake pedal and the gas as well, um, I think there's a role, um, if only for avoiding the, you know that human behavior thing, the charlatans. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have uh, you know the FDA for a reason, okay, to make sure we don't sell snake oil, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the problem is, and people always complain about, is that, well, hold on, you know, the FDA has only one way of uh, treating um, assessments of procedures, devices, and drugs, uh, and it's very isolated. It doesn't account for the interplay of different diseases because the way they're set up, it, it doesn't see it that way. Um, but that doesn't mean I want to do it with the FDA, <laughs> okay? It's, it's a matter of degree. So I think there's a role for the government to play. Uh, the extent of that role... Uh, I'd have to put a lot more thought into it to give you a, a cogent answer. No, that's great. Here's here's uh, what I'm trying to um, process with you. Um, abortion, right? We all agree that when you get to the point where a woman is um, terminating a pregnancy, something has gone wrong, right? And I, I don't, so I, I think there's consensus around that. Something has gone wrong, right? So I wanted first you to say, um, do you think... Uh, I'm just gonna. I don't want. To, I don't want to get distracted by this moral word. I'm saying that. Let's say okay. there's good people. Do you believe there's good people? <laughs> to quote Trump, on both sides of an abortion issue. As long as you don't get too crazy on, you know, when when they're saying you can do the abortion. But I'm, you know, so beginning of the pregnancy. Yeah. First. Okay. I, I think so. But it goes back to remember when we talked about good uh, in our first conversation 
you know, are you a good person? And I think I made the distinction that you were asking from the standpoint of uh, objective conduct today, is it good, okay? But the fact of the matter is that we as a species are explorers, we're innovators, okay? We, we right wrongs, okay? We have a duty to act on things that um, uh, expand our knowledge, expand our spirit, prevent harm to others. And so good is an active sense. It's a, it's a creative force. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be willing to uh, um, go into the unknown, whether it is, you know, opening up you know, the prairie, okay, or whether it's opening up your mind. You've got to be willing to be unknown. Otherwise, you're, you're, not a, you're a small good. You're, you're a lowercase g good person, mm-hmm. okay, because you're really closed-minded and you're really not trying to understand the truth. You think all the truth has, had to be discovered has already been discovered, and you're happy where you are and you don't want to change it, okay? So when abortion is where you see this in, in bold relief, okay? So I think there are good small g people on both sides. And I think there are people on both sides that are willing to take on the conversation of what is the right solution, okay? When it, what is the right underlying problem description regarding abortion? You said something has gone wrong. Well, good. Are, do we want to prescribe a solution just knowing that something's gone wrong? Or do we want to discover what the actual wrong thing is and then uh, uh, figure out what the solution should be to it, okay? And that is the real test. That will be the real test. Like, um, for example, someone might say, like, I, I am a good person on the left because I want to protect a woman's right to choose. I have the standard. And, and how can you say that, deny, uh, that protecting a woman's right to choose is a bad thing? I mean, it, it's her freedom. It's her fundamental constitutionally guaranteed rights, okay? Uh, are you saying that that's wrong? Actually, I would say, no, I say that's good, but that's a scale, okay? And let's put some numbers on that scale. Let's say that scale goes from zero to six. But now let's put out another scale over here on the right where they talk about life begins at conception, okay? It's uh, anointed by God, blah, 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 okay? And let's put us numbers on those scale. And guess what? That scale goes up to 10, okay? Let's see if we can reconcile those two scales, okay? Because maybe six on your scale is the same as a 10 on mine, but let's figure out how to get these two to line up to see whether, okay, your level four on your six uh, numerated uh, scale is higher or lower than, as an interest, than the seven on this zero to 10 scale. And you've got to be comfortable with the outcome being that, no, it's not. Yeah. The, the, there's here's I want to go a slightly different direction. I, although I was appreciating okay, that. Um, let's say that you can have you can agree not on whether abortion is good or bad, moral, not moral, whatever your scales are, but that if you do certain things from a public policy perspective, you would have less abortions, right? Um, that seems like a good way to think about the problem. Right, to yeah, accept- I, I, I agree. So basically, let's look past the issue. Let's not focus directly on it because that may be too deep uh, a quagmire to slog through. Mm-hmm. But there are things that we could do that both sides would not find objectionable, which in their impact would lead to a lower incidence of abortion. Would anyone want to argue against that? Is that what you're saying? Right, right. Is that, that's something that resonates with you, like that, that logic. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. It, it's you know, there's different ways to skin the cat, and that's that's not a bad way to start. Mm-hmm. One thing I was I marvelled at, and I don't have the latest stats, but do you 
there was a certain murder rate. The murder rate has been going down for a while, right? There was recently a spike in some big cities, but it's actually from a, a I forget how many decade long trend um, it's been going down. That down, downward trend started, um, it seemed to coincide, as I recall, but I don't know for sure. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, basically the economy improved and crime diminished, violent crime diminished, and abortion, uh, the, the rate of the, um, people having abortions decreased. And one of the ideas is, oh, when it didn't, it isn't like suddenly people stopped, suddenly like, I don't know, all bad people who are doing crimes suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth, right? Like something changed, and there was a drop in crime and violent crime. Um, first of all, do you accept my, my characterization that, let's say across a 20-year window, crime of all kinds has decreased? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the case. Um, there's no doubt that there is a linkage for some types of crime in some circumstances to financial wherewithal. People are less likely to steal when they've got money in their pocket, right? right. So, and how, and, how about this? I'm. What about if more people had access to a good education? So you wouldn't immediately see that your crime stats would go down, but I think it, it, it's safe to say that if people have a better education, it would probably have an impact on, you know, larger work pool, large, you know, larger good employees for your businesses, um, that people would see a future, and that in itself can decrease something like the rate of abortion. Do you accept that? Uh, I'd like to see the data behind that. I, I think the premise is, is a good one, but, you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there. You, you got to right. uh, see whether it, it there's cause and effect correlation or just uh, a relationship. And then what is the cost of achieving that, that favorable outcome? Right. And then what is the cost of not doing it? Like if, if there was a way to make more people have hope for their future, be employable because they could, were good at the skills you need these days to get a good job, that would be, a positive for everyone like your business they'd be consumers right they would um they'd be employable like that seems like that's you know i don't want pie in the sky but that's that you would agree with that even though we don't we don't have, we're not looking at numbers yes i would agree with that one of the things that, what I, that I think about with, with something like abortion or or a lot of our social problems that if more people had better nutrition and better education, we would really do something about generational um, poverty and some of the um, some of what happens when you have generational poverty, like uh, abortion and people not being able to afford their health care and stuff like that. Is that a is it? Am I am I? I'm going down a dangerous trail for you. <laughs> are you no, are you accepting? no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not um, uncomfortable with that supposition. Okay. So when I think of, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, um, you know, have someone that's made a really a bunch of bad choices and then you give them a free ride. You're creating a society that um, will not bring out the best in people and will waste a lot of money because you can't just keep paying for someone else's bad decisions, right? Well, you can but if you've unlimited funds. I mean, but you... yeah, yeah, right. But who wants that? Um, right. But there's this other this other view that says 
you know, people don't want to uh, be poor and suffering and not have access to healthcare. But there, there's some, um, there's some advantages, let's say, that they're not getting, like a good nutrition and good healthcare, that are, um, that are creating a real barrier to them accessing the benefits of, you know, what I modern society that that, that we certainly enjoy. Do, do you do you accept that line of logic somewhere? I, I I do, but unfortunately, most people make decisions that way. So, um, uh, people who say, "Okay, I, I don't want to be poor," okay, or I uh, who want to choose to be poor, but do you realize that you now need to uh, spend four years going to college? That you now need to work a regular job? You need to get up at a regular beast in the morning, and you can't stay up till four a.m. playing video games with your your friends any longer? Oh. Oh, well, uh, I, I didn't realize I'd have to stop doing and start doing a bunch of things differently than I am today because I really like how things are going today, either because I like the outcomes, which I probably don't, but it makes me feel good in the, in the way I'm going about things, and I don't want Maybe to Maybe in, in the short term. Yeah. Um, so do we have the right to so, compel them to do the right things, right? Well, times when I, when I um, what about this scenario? Uh, if you have a kid, right, they get born into a family, and that family doesn't, they don't live in a place that has a good school district. And the family, the, the parent might be really young or uh, not knowledgeable or not have the, um, the wherewithal to, to teach their kids the stuff you want them to learn from the very beginning, right? Um, it, in that scenario, that kid seems pretty much doomed to follow in the footsteps of their parent, right? Do, do you accept that? Well, that's that's the sociological argument. I would I would say no. Okay, um, huh. I would say that's a probabilistic exercise. For example, if, you know, I have a son in the school district who you know gets his average like ninety six or ninety seven. Okay, but I don't consider it a real comparative. Uh, position. I keep telling him that. Okay, you know, don't feel good about yourself that you're obviously a genius relative to your <laughs> classmates. Okay, because the relevant relevant comparative group is in China. Okay, and in South Korea or in Germany. Okay, so you know we can't measure against them very directly, but we can start thinking about how you're doing on the Iowa test or other standardized tests that give a much broader perspective of how well you're really doing. Okay, at at the relevant level. Okay. And the other thing is this, regardless of those comparisons, okay, they're indicators. They're indicators that more than likely you know more or have the ability to grasp more than the other people around you, and this should indicate better outcomes for you, but doesn't entitle you to better outcomes, and it does not relieve you of the responsibility to achieve those better outcomes regardless of what the indicators say, okay? Because I hold you as your parent to a higher standard, that you own your life and you're responsible for the outcomes regardless of the degree of fairness and opportunity that is present to you in, uh, in the surrounding community, okay? You know, it, you've got to be able to uh, take charge of your circumstances and, and uh, create a new world, Okay, I believe you. You do? Yeah, not only do I believe you, um, I believe that you uh, made something of your life from, uh, you know, it wasn't handed 
to you, right? Uh, and, I, uh, ad- <laughs> and I admire that, right? Uh, and uh, that's a benefit of getting this chance to talk with you, right? But I think there's a lot of kids not that could be a duplicate of my kid or your kid, right? But their parent is not like you, right? You're going to make sure that your kid um, is challenged and it knows what's going on. You're going you're gonna to tell them this is the way it works, right? But other kids don't have that. And I don't understand. Like, there's a part of me that doesn't understand. If the parent can't give the kid that, right? I'm not, it's not like I think the society should, like, fill the, you know, like, uh, go in there and take the kid away and, you know, <laughs> make the kid get A's on the test. But I do think if you ignore that reality, that there's a bunch of these kids who probably have tons of potential, and that potential is not being tapped. Oh, I agree. I agree with that. Okay, so we're talking about that segment. No, I talked about my son, and you know, he's doing very well. But you could have someone else who is doing just as well that may not have um, the ability to achieve the outcome. Let me rephrase. That would be assisted by efforts of third parties and could achieve better outcomes in their life. And that that percentage of kids is probably high, I'd say north of 20%. I would, I would agree. And in fact, I think our public school systems and other things like how uh, higher education is funded um, allow for those folks who are uh, in what we call the, the, the low opportunity bucket, okay, to provide them more avenues and more uh, tools, incentives, and supports in order to um, give them the highest uh, a higher probability of success than left to their own devices or their own family they would find on their own. So you, I think that's a worthy thing to do. Yeah. You know, the understanding is that um, the amount of money you make, the amount of uh, uh, resources, what are your assets, right? In the United States, if you look mathematically at it, it is pretty much... Uh, calculated by knowing what your parents um, assets are so this idea that um, it's a it's a meritocracy doesn't seem to uh, end up with the math unless you think that just the poor parents they they have less merit and their kids have less merit like can you what like help me out I, I mean yeah, I, I, I think I know what you're saying, and, and tell you the truth, you may have better data than I have, okay? So if the statistics say that, you know, for 80% of the population, okay, that there is a very high correlation in career outcome of children to their parents' career outcomes, I, I could believe that. I, I'm not close to the data. I could, I could believe that, okay? I look at the people, oh, most of these guys work for the town or for Intertech or whatever, you know? They're not going to cure cancer down there, okay? And what is going to happen to their kids? Well, they're probably not going to cure cancer either, okay? I, I would agree with that, uh-huh. okay? But that doesn't, this is where I'm kind of the victim of my own numbers. I mean, we talked about the 10% being you know, the ones left behind. 
Well, that 10% being left behind can also be the exceptional ones, too, and that, you know, my son is caught up in a school system which tries to reach that 40% we talked about a moment ago to try and help them achieve better outcomes, but my son is not able to reach his full potential because the school system is not geared to it. It's almost like healthcare where he can't get the proper education or the proper healthcare. He's being held back. Yeah. But the fact is, that's up to me to fix that, okay, if I'm really all that worried about it, from my vantage point. It is. But getting back to, you know, his, um, his particular case, okay, um, uh, and looking at his father, you know, I, if I compared myself to my father, I have far and away um, out-achieved, I guess, uh, what my parents achieved in the course of their life, okay? And I, uh, I, I paint this picture to my son, hopefully, that at some level it'll, it'll register and that he'll want to achieve far more than his father, and I, I, I encourage him to do so, okay, because I know it, it can be different than what the numbers say. But as a society needing to regulate itself, you know, perhaps I'm part of that 10% that, you know, we just got to not let them guide how we make public policy. Well, what I'm concerned about is uh, there's kids out there that don't have you as the father, right? And it's not their fault that they don't have you right. as their father. Right. Right. I think that you could take any kid and make something of that kid, right? Any kid. But I think that um, a lot of people aren't going to be that good, you know? And so I'm trying to figure out what the public good is to have kids who are in a generational situation where their parents couldn't give them more and there's um, barriers built in to that, that those kids' lives. The exceptional ones will make it out, but there's going to be less than half. I just don't... Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. So sometimes when I hear the meritocracy case, right, it'll appeal, you know, like like universal, um, what is that, the universal income, whatever, where you just give everybody <laughs> money. U- like, UBI. I don't see us doing that because... It is so not the way we think in this country. We're like, no, <laughs> you're going to work for your money. I had a paper route. You're going to do that. You know, stuff like that. I don't see that. But on the other hand, I don't, I'm worried about the social justice aspect. If there's a kid, right, and I'm just looking at that kid. I'm not looking at their lame parent if their parent is lame. I'm just looking at the kid. I'm like, so they're not going to get the message about the value of education. And they're not going to be in a school district that has the same resources as other school districts. Like, what is going to happen? And it seems like it could be a waste. So maybe that kid could cure cancer, right? And and maybe they are agreed. Maybe they are part of a crime statistic that is bad. Maybe they're going to have premarital sex and be part of a situation where they're going to want an abortion. Like, maybe an investment in these in people would have a positive uh, uh, return um, on all kinds of statistics we don't like. Oh, yeah, so... So uh, pretty much... I think it's a a valid premise, and, you know, I, I... 
I think there's clear evidence that in some cases it has worked. I mean, how many times have you seen a movie or read a book or had a special on TV where some inner city kid or you know, rural, you know, hate um, overcame circumstances because of the intercession of a third party, either a mentor or a state agency or a cop or whatever, right, okay? Right, right. And they provided the avenue or the impetus to this individual to overcome their circumstances, okay? Um, there are clear, compelling, you know, transactional examples of that. If you, you were to roll it all up in the numbers, you might see that, hey, you know, 5% of all kids in this bucket of 40% can overcome the circumstances with investment in them, okay? You don't want to deny them that, do you? Well, no, it sounds like a good idea. The question is, what is the investment, you know, what, what is it compared to other investments we could make? Um, is 5% sufficient, okay? Or is there a good human interest story? You know, when we talk about public policy, that's where... Um, we got to go beyond feeling good about the transaction to thinking about, okay, uh, you know, in the end of the day, uh, there's winners and losers, okay, whether they, it's fair or not, okay, mm -hmm. and we only have limited resources to go out in order to explore these things. We've got to see what works and what doesn't, okay, and um, uh, be open-minded about what the data says, okay, but could, could it occur in what you're describing? Absolutely, absolutely. Here's, I just have a couple more questions, okay? Okay. And um, uh, all right. Is there any belief you see in other people where in your mind you're saying to yourself, how the heck can that person believe that? Where you're absolutely puzzled. You don't know what their logic is for why they believe what they believe. Uh, well, I, I might. Okay, so I'm, I'm puzzled how people can do this, but um, there are people who think they're competent at their roles when they're completely incompetent. <laughs> Okay. I mean, it's it, it, obvious to inspection from third parties that it, based upon the results they're achieving, you're nuts. You, you don't know what you're doing, but they live in this bubble, okay, which allows them to think that they're talented, intelligent, capable, um, effective managers and leaders when clearly they are not, okay? And the largest reason why is that, well, they have no cohesive definition of what is competent management and leadership. So they just feel good about themselves because they have not no they have no objective standard to compare their performance. <laughs> they're to. so incompetent; so they, they don't see them. how bad they are, right? <laughs> they don't. No, absolutely not. They think they're geniuses. Right. And this okay? is this is a work life thing, right? You see this in yeah, oh yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Oh god, I so relate yeah. to that. All right, this is uh, that was one piece. This is the last piece uh, that I, I wanted to ask you about. Do you have three books uh, that? had an influence, an important influence to you? It could be actually three movies or three anythings, but uh, books would be good. Recommendations that are, that helped you along your way as, as a person? Um, sure. Um, one that popped into my head book-wise would mm -hmm. probably start off with The Apology uh, by Socrates. teaches you about the fact that when you choose to be a citizen someplace, you don't get the homes that you'd like, mm -hmm. okay? Very, very important, okay? Um, second, the Federalist Papers, very good um, background in uh, the intellectual underpinnings of the Republic. That's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I'm the Bible because that's a punchline, right? Um, <laughs> hmm. But a third book... Yeah, I want to go with that one. Um, you can broaden it to 
movies or something, and you can say more than three. It's very open-ended. And I know it's out of the blue, so it's hard to remember all these. Yeah. Um, I'd probably, if I threw in a movie, it'd be The Sound of Music. It's my favorite movie of all time, um, just because it's so hopeful and so beautiful in the in the shadow of such darkness. Um, um, given the setting. But uh, a third book, I only had one left. I'd go with The Hobbit. The Hobbit. I'd go with the Hobbit. Why is that? Well, uh, the Hobbit opened a lot of uh, issues to me inadvertently. Okay, mm-hmm. I found the story very enjoyable when I was a child. Okay, and read it many times thereafter. Okay, but um, what caught me about the story as I got older was just the, the range of uh, imagination contained within languages and other beings and things like that. So it, it feeds the imagination. Uh, and as I dug into the author, uh, Tolkien, and learned about you know, his background at Oxford and his PhD in philoletics and ancient languages yeah, yeah, and things yeah. like that, I just learned a lot about um, uh, how you can go down a path of development, okay, uh, that can yield results unexpectedly. Because I think The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are, you know, to us as a species, I think they're great stories. Um, they obviously resonate in the marketplace, uh, but they came from a guy who would least expect to come up with something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also uh, in his circle of friends are people like C.S. Lewis, right? And you know, not, I'm not talking about C.S. Lewis of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm talking about C.S. Lewis of mere Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like you know, tomes like that. I mean, um, The Hobbit uh, was a good story, but it was it, way into seeing kind of deeper, broader issues of the, the creative process and um, uh, the world around me that when I was a teenager, I, I, from my trailer, I really didn't know anything about. And I, I, it fired my imagination to, to go out and explore, to basically, you know, walk out that door like Bilbo Baggins did, okay, and go see what the wide world, you know, had to, uh, had to offer. That was episode three of Like You. My name is John Zelson. You've just met Wes. Subscribe to Like You to meet more new people. Thank you for listening and...